Good morning. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 through 21. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. Morning, church. On the heels of Resurrection Sunday, we're going to today further unpack what it means to be new in Christ. Indeed, as the passage tells us, that if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. So if anyone says the resurrection, or we begin to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, what immediately comes to mind? For many, this is a fable. For some, it might simply be just an incredible moment where God displays His power in resurrecting Christ, and it was for sure. But does it have any consequences upon your life and my life? To that I say yes, absolutely. The scriptures say absolutely. And we began to talk about this last week in dealing with Jesus as our living hope, that we have been born again, the passage tells us in 1 Peter 1. And today, We continue in that theme with this message. And I want to break this down into a few different ways. First, I want to look at at reconciliation as a whole um, in light of the ministry of reconciliation, the necessity of it, and also what it means to be a minister of reconciliation. So let's begin with the necessity of reconciliation. Our passage this morning, Paul uses the word flesh. Now, this is notoriously a difficult word for translators uh, to translate. I read this week that in the NIV translation alone, there are 48 English words for this one Greek word. And so it's not an overstatement to say that it's incredibly difficult for us to really wrap our heads around and, and get to the bottom of what Paul means when he uses it. But it's not beyond our reach either. In general, the word flesh in the Bible refers to our carnal or earthly state, our purely physical selves. But it can also refer to our sinful desires. And Paul, in the majority of the time in his letters, refers to flesh in this way, as a sinful desire. Some examples of that are Romans 6 and Galatians 5 and Colossians 3. I encourage you to go and check those out for further study. But the funny thing here is that Paul is not using this word in that manner. 
in context, if we remember what we're speaking about, we can see that Paul is dealing with our physical and earthly selves in contrast to our spiritual and heavenly selves. He's been doing this for the past 18 verses or so. And he's not doing it in a manner that minimizes our physical selves, but he is doing it in a manner that shows that our heavenly calling, that our living hope that is kept in heaven for us, it supersedes, it transcends every earthly reality. So Paul's words when he says, we regard no one according to the flesh, is simply put, we do not judge each other by earthly standards. This is an implication of the resurrection. It's an implication of the consequence of the resurrection. If the consequence of the resurrection is that we have new life in Christ, that because Christ was risen, we are now new in Him, we have new life in our new creation, then the implication of that is that we no longer regard each other according to the flesh. It is also an overflow of what he says in verse 15. That he says we are no longer we no longer live for ourselves but for God. We no longer live for ourselves but for God. We no longer judge each other according to earthly standards. We no longer regard one another according to the flesh. So allow me to set the scene for us. And we'll bring this all the way back to the beginning when Adam and Eve are in the garden they they disobeyed God. They thereby ushered in sin into the world. And since that point, all mankind has a physical state that is marred by sin. We come into the world in this state, sinful. We can say that Adam and Eve inaugurated this. But the book doesn't close there. There's much more to the story. Before the foundations of the world, there was a plan. God chooses a people out of all the nations. He chooses a nation to be His people, Israel. And although Israel would continually over and over again turn their backs upon this God, He would relentlessly in His mercy carry out His plan of restoration. Hold on to that word because we'll come back to it often. Of restoration for His people. The prophet Isaiah was, is an interesting story to study. He, the prophet Isaiah lived um, during the exile of Israel, and he prophesied to the nation of Israel for between 60 and 80 years, declaring that God would judge their sin, but yet, even still, he would have mercy and would restore Israel back to himself. The final chapters of the book of Isaiah lay out this prophecy of restoration of God's people. In chapter 43, he says, God says through Isaiah, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you perceive it? And in chapter 65, again, God says through Isaiah to the, to the nation of Israel, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. This prophecy through Isaiah is both complete today and yet incomplete. It is complete in the sense that Israel was restored from Babylonian captivity, but yet is incomplete 
in the sense that God has not yet finished or brought to consummation His redemption of all His people. And today on this side of the cross, as we sit here on this side of the cross, we can see and we can know and and hold firm to the fact that God did not simply choose from the foundations of the world before the foundations of the world to restore a nation to Himself, but to restore a people, a people of all nations and all tribes and all tongues. This was God's redemptive plan. This was the plan from the beginning and how God chose to show the world that He is the one and the only Savior. And this is the backdrop for our passage today. We look in verse 17 here. Look there with me of chapter 5, verse 17. Paul says, The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Surely this is reminiscent of God's prophecy through Isaiah to the nation of Israel. Even in the word behold, as if to say, stop, don't miss it. Grab a hold, lean in, pay attention to what I'm about to declare to you. And so today, wherever we're at, whether you're sitting on your couch or you're sitting at your kitchen table, may you sit up straight, may you lean in, may you not miss what Paul's words are to the Corinthians and therefore God's words to us written for us today. It is this, that while Adam introduced sin into the world, God in Jesus Christ, his son, introduced his final plans for restoration. While Adam's sin inaugurated the fall from God's presence, God in Christ inaugurates reconciliation back to himself. Said another way, it is reconciliation that is the inauguration of God's plan of restoration, of restoring all mankind back to Him. He's starting something new within the old. As we discuss in our Good Friday service, if you missed it, um, you can check it out in our sermon section on our website. But we discussed in atonement, there are two parts to reconciliation that we have to understand. And in verse 18, Paul says, God through Christ reconciled us to the Father. In verse 19, he says, In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself. How? Not counting their trespass or sin against them. This is the first requirement. It is the merciful forgiveness of our God to all who come to him with a repentant heart. And he says, Your sins are forgiven. God saw fit in His glory, in His wonder, in His immensity, in, 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 in a way that we would never understand, God saw fit to find glory in forgiving people that were rebellious and treacherous against Him. This is the first part. The second part is this. We did not only need pardon from our sins, for that would just simply not be enough to reconcile us back to God. But what we needed was not simply a a heart cleansed from our guilt of sin, but a heart that no longer was desirous for our sin. We would no longer live for ourselves or judge according to human standards, but we would live for God. And this comes by way of the second part of the atonement. It's Jesus' imputed righteousness to you and to I. For Paul said not only that the old has passed away, but he has said the new has come. Not only has your old self died and your flesh has been done away with in Christ, but in Christ you are a new creation. 
That means our thoughts, our actions, our emotions, all of our being has been reoriented in such a way to such a manner that it is as if we have been born for the first time. It is as if we have eyes of an infant, that we see things new for the first time ever, that we are completely and utterly and fully new. Even Paul, if you consider him here and what he's saying, even his understanding and his judgment of others was dramatically flipped. He says that even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Paul is saying that I thought I knew who Jesus was, but I was wrong. At once I regarded him simply according to the flesh, but I was wrong. Paul, the once Saul who ravaged the church and sought to kill or imprison anyone who followed this person that he hated, Jesus of Nazareth, he was changed in a moment. And in that moment, he leaves everything. He leaves his community, his possessions, his titles and accomplishments, his health, his chance of settling down and starting a family, even his own life for the sake of the risen Christ. This, my friends, is the consequence of Jesus' resurrection from the grave. If you're watching this and you're not a Christian, the first step in becoming one is this. It's understanding that you cannot taste and see the goodness of God in your own understanding. It is because that your understanding is a dead understanding. This is not me calling you dumb. And although I, I do understand how this would be an insult to many, these are not my words, but they are God's. And that we cannot come to Him with our own understanding, our own intellect, because it's not even a matter of intellect. Even the wisest are, is a fool to God. What it is a matter of is something that we could never deal with on our own. It is our sinful nature. It's our sinfulness. It's a sinfulness that has been so pervasive in all of our life that it has changed the way we view and understand and see things. And this sin keeps us from understanding, seeing, and actually moving towards God. So God had to move towards us. Because of your sinful flesh, you will not, cannot come to faith in Jesus apart from His Spirit drawing you. So the question is, is God drawing you today? The bad news is what I've already stated, but the good news is this, as Romans 8, verse 10 and 11 tells us, If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the power of the resurrection. It does not mean that you cease to sin for I am a sinner, but it does mean that your sins are no longer counted against you. And it means that Christ's righteousness, his perfect obedience is counted towards you. And in, in His strength, you, know, you cease from living for yourself and begin to live for God. It's not the intellectual who come to this conclusion, but it is the spiritually broken. Those who have come to the end of themselves and say that, God, I need you. And though you cannot come to God on, our, on your own, come to Him, you must, in order to be reconciled.
If you're watching and you are a Christian, the first step to understanding your calling as a Christian, a minister of reconciliation, is to understand that you are no longer who you once were. You are no longer your old self. It is no longer that sin controls you, but it is God's love that hems you in. It is God's love that empowers you. It determines not only how you think, but how you act. And this is really important for us to understand. And I'll read this quote from Scott Haifman in his, um, his commentary on this text. He says, For Paul, the real evidence of the glory of the new creation is not spiritual ecstasy, but moral transformation. The evidence for our newness is not some kind of ecstasy that we find in, in our knowledge or even in momentary fleeting experiences, but it is in a life that's been transformed by the power of the gospel. And it's here that we'll spend the remainder of our time looking at the minister of reconciliation. All of us have the tendency to view each other through an earthly lens, to view one another through a lens that has been given to us through the world. We place our allegiances politically and socially with those that we agree with or that we like or that we find attractive or admire because of their, maybe their accomplishments or their fame or following, beauty, talents, money, intellect, you name it. We also have prejudices against others because of ethnicities or races or colors or upbringings or status. But those either need to die or they need to submit themselves underneath our ultimate allegiance to Christ. These allegiances must submit to a higher allegiance. We do pledge allegiance to our flag, to our nation. But does that mean that I should forsake the love and the unity and spirit that I have with my brother and sister across the seas in Iraq or Sudan? May it be said, never. Absolutely never. For God in Christ has broken down the wall of hostility that stood against us. He has made us one people. So where is your ultimate allegiance today, Christian? Do your lesser allegiances need to die? Do they need to be submitted to God and His gospel? For there is one voice that we follow wholeheartedly. There is one voice that we answer to. And let me bring this closer to home for us. In the, in the midst of this pandemic, there is all kinds of opportunity for us to find disunity with one another. We will find some agreeing with one person and some agreeing with another person. We will find those who are feel, fearful and those who are annoyed. May it be said that us as a church will place all allegiances underneath our allegiance to Christ. Because in the end, we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for God. If being reconciled was not enough for us, and it would be, believe me, church, it would be, but God also invites us in to participate in this reconciling work that He does through the world. Think about that for a moment. The, the apostles' ministry, and in, in our ministry indeed, even today, um, may be summed up in these words here, that we are ambassadors for Christ. We, the reconciled, have become ambassadors for Jesus Christ. 
An ambassador is just a fancy word for a representative. In the context of national government, it is the individual who represents one country to another and handles the business between the two. And Paul's meaning here, we should understand it, and these two glorious truths. First is this, that I speak and I act in someone else's authority. And the second is I proclaim someone else's message. And let me share just how these are glorious and how they free us and how they liberate us to be the people that God has called us to be. First, we speak and act in someone else's authority. May we not miss the fact that this ministry has been given to us, that it is a gracious gift to us. Look at with me in verse 18. He says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We can no more jump into the ministry of God than we can atone for our own sins. This is an incredible moment of grace that God has bestowed upon his people that he cherishes. He gives them a gift. And let me illustrate this with, with, with this. There are uh, things that I do, like building, that I don't need to invite my son in to do. My wife doesn't need to invite our near three-year-old into making dinner with her. And in fact, both of us would actually do well to, uh, as far as efficiency goes and productivity to not invite them to do that. We'd be much more productive without them. But inviting them into the, our work to participate with us, we bestow upon them dignity. We not only tell them that they are our children, but we demonstrate to them that they are ours. We demonstrate that we love them by allowing them to participate in our work. So it is with God and His children. Now, let me give you a few ways that maybe you can participate in God's work with those around you. Even here in this pandemic, even here in this quarantine, maybe you should and ought to be, or you ought to be, not should, maybe, but you ought to be a minister of reconciliation to your husband or your wife. That you would not be divisive, that you would not be argumentative, but you would be submissive and you would lay down your life for the other person. That you would consider his or her needs before your own. That you would move towards them in a spirit and a nature of reconciliation the way that God has in Christ has moved towards you. Maybe it is your kids. You know, if, if the kids are like mine, they're wound up, they're tired of sitting in the house, and they're going crazy, which is driving me crazy, it's driving my wife crazy. But how do we in this moment move towards our children, to point them to Christ, to be a minister of reconciliation to them? Then in the same way God has moved towards us, so we move towards them. Or maybe it's your friends that are, that are far from you, and they need to hear from you, and you need to reach out to them through a phone call or a text or an email. And you need to encourage them with the Word of God. You need to encourage them with prayer. Maybe they're far from Christ, or maybe they're struggling with their faith. Whatever the case may be, how do you move towards people that are far from you? Or maybe they're near you. Maybe they're your neighbors. And God is calling you to move towards your neighbors in a spirit of reconciliation, as a minister, as an ambassador of Christ, to represent Him to them. Does God need you and I to carry out His work of reconciliation? No, never. But does that delegitimize it? No, never. 
See, God has chosen. God has chosen to carry out his work of reconciliation and restoration through his church. And because he has willed it, nothing can thwart it. This should give you and I an incredible amount of purpose and confidence. That even though the work we put our hands to might be difficult, that even though it may be long and tiresome, and even though we may see very little to zero return on this side of eternity, everything that we do as a minister of reconciliation in the spirit that is moving us and working through us will not, cannot be countered. So what it has, God, what God has purposed will come to pass. The second thing is that we have someone else's message. The second glorious truth of being an ambassador is that not only are we in and acting as some, under someone's authority, but we are speaking someone else's message. Here may be the most startling revelation for us that God is making his appeal through us, the Bible tells us. This harkens back to chapter 2, verse 17, where Paul says, we speak in Christ. I don't know about you, but to me, I'd much rather God make his appeal through me than to me make an appeal for God to others. There's nothing that I could conjure up that would even come close to God appealing His work and His word through me. I assure you this, and I assure you it's the same for you, that you are a representative to the world that need to hear God's message. And here's God's appeal. This is God's appeal that we are told. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Does this challenge your way of thinking about God and others? It should. It should radically shift our disposition towards others. Flowing from an extraordinary gospel of grace, may we be moved to pursue others in reconciliation, even in the midst of this pandemic. Friends, the nature of reconciliation is love. It's a heart transformed by the love of God and the power of His message, the gospel, which leads us to a radical ministry towards others. And all of this is going somewhere. In closing here, know that all of this is going somewhere. All of this is leading somewhere. I began by telling you that God has begun a plan of restoration even before the foundations of the world. He has inaugurated his final work of restoration in Christ, reconciling mankind to himself. And this will be finalized and brought to consummation one day. It's going somewhere. In closing, Revelation 21, 1-4 tells us, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would give us, by your Spirit, a supernatural understanding of how you have moved towards us in a reconciling way, 
You have moved towards us in a sacrificial, merciful way. And God, may we in turn move towards others. May we grab a hold of this ministry that you have given to us with with great humility, O God. May we hold on to it. And may we move in great confidence because you have called us to such a calling. May we know that all of this is leading somewhere. That you have always purposed and planned to be with the people that you have chosen. And so we welcome that day wholeheartedly, O God. Christ, come. We want to see you. We want to be with you. But, O God, give us faithfulness while you keep us here. In Jesus' beautiful name, amen.